Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello and welcome and Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mrs. Graham. This will be part two of our coverage of Frances Perkins. When we last left Frances, was that dramatic enough? She had been trained by her family to help others, trained by both Mount Holyoke College and Columbia University to research, to think critically, and to form practical solutions for any problem that she might encounter. And she had been trained by life and work in settlement houses and in the nonprofit organizations for a career in social work. She knew her job. Her job was to investigate, agitate, and legislate. She's 31 years old, living in New York City, working as a social worker. She's just recently witnessed the tragedy of the Triangle Shirtwaist Company fire, and it has set a path for the rest of her life. So it is time for her to take her anger at what has just happened and also her extensive knowledge of both workplace safety and employee protections and put it to work. Due to the interference, or shall we say influence rather, of New York Assemblyman Al Smith, who she had worked with before, she was nominated to be a part of an organization called the Factory Investigating Commission. They were to find out what are the scope of the problems and then what laws could we propose that would fix the underlying crisis. So they focused on things like workman's comp, safety, sanitation, um, workman's hours, wages, and also hazardous materials. Anyone who's seen, for example, the radium girls know that often people were forced or encouraged to work with hazardous materials with no protective gear. So they were focused on counteracting those sort of things. Frances Perkins, though, went one further. She arranged factory tours for legislators and other men of uh, power and explain to them in human terms based on facts and their own eyes what the conditions were that everyone was attempting to fix. The Jungle had just come out about five years before. And if you haven't read it, brace yourself. The author had wanted it to be about workmen's conditions and workers' rights, but it was the mistreatment of the customer's food that caused people to freak out first. I mean, freaked out. You never saw the like of how fast that Food and Drug Act got passed after the jungle came out. So Francis decided that she was going to use sort of that same technique. Francis is wily and smart, and she brings them to a candy factory. Oh, this is fancy candy, they smiled. I know this name. I buy this for gifts for my wife. Do you? said Francis. How delightful. So she takes them in the factory, and the workers are just working around open flame, just in the open air with no lids. They have no hats on. Their hair is falling into the chocolate. Oh, the aprons are covered in old chocolate. Do you wash these every night, says Francis. Oh, no, ma'am, says the worker. I'm too poor to afford laundry. I just hang them on the hook like everyone. So the chocolate on these people's aprons has been festering for weeks, months. I mean, lovely forever. Yeah. They look to see were their washrooms. Oh, there's one toilet for 300 people and we're not allowed the time to wash our hands. In fact, mm-hmm. all the while leading the tour, Francis would smile pleasantly, introducing herself, not really pointing things out anymore. And now let's look at fire safety, gentlemen. Let's let's look. And they had been primed by her previous lectures about fire safety. 
And they started to notice things for themselves. Like, you know how when you have a spelling word list and you start noticing it everywhere, the men on her tour would say, hey, there's not a straight aisle to the door. Oh, really? Oh, these stairs don't have a railing on them. It doesn't? The burners were under these chocolate pots. They don't have any fire guards on them. Oh, my. Well, maybe we should make some notes about that. Then she'd take them to the polar opposite type of factory, a factory owner who had required and provided clean uniforms, hairnets, had a laundry staff to deal with the laundry, a cleaning staff to deal with the factory floor, proper washing facilities, handrails, safety protocols, training. And gentlemen, this factory also operates at a profit. I'm reminded of Heinz and all of their old ads for decades. Their ads showed rows and rows of hairnetted workers in a tidy, well-lit factory. They purposely packaged everything in clear glass jars so the customer could see exactly what you were getting. Oscar Meyer, down there in Chicago, had volunteered as the very first meat packer to be inspected under that new Meat Inspection Act of 1906. Frances Perkins' point to the men she was leading around was this. People who pretend that these safeguards we're asking for are just too oppressive to run a profitable business maybe just aren't that good of businessmen. And so Perkins lets the information percolate. Masterful. Very. Masterful. Also on the tours, she was quick to praise the men that had helped her, had pointed her in the direction of the good factories, the people that were making profits, the people that could explain how it was done. And she said, what a liberal education I've been given, free, gratis, by technical men of tremendous knowledge in their own fields, engineers, architects, chemists, physicists, men who deal with the very fiber of modern industrial life. They are the ones that taught me in private lessons for nothing what goes into making a safe factory. And she is such a good teacher that she is turning that around and teaching it to all these New York state politicians without them knowing that she's teaching them. Brilliant. So she's touring the state, touring factories. She's also heading up to the state capitol in Albany and doing traditional lobbying The 54-hour workweek bill was coming up. Yeah, 54 hours. We have to take baby steps. That's a big step, though. No, it is a big step. Well, women and children were cheaper. And so what would you do if you were unscrupulous? You would work them to the ground because they're cheaper. I mean, children were working 72 hours a week. Mm -hmm. It is a baby step, just like you said. So from here, it seems like, what? 54? Right. And just for women and children. But it was really a big deal. You know, Francis said that unions won't let women in. So somebody has to advocate for them. And she tried to do this before and she got outmaneuvered. But now she was wiser in the ways of legislation. So this bill was coming up again for a vote and people tried to pull some shenanigans again. But she called in some chips. So Senator Franklin Delano Roosevelt himself, so she used her high connections, he held the floor with a brilliant lecture on birds and bird watching and how delightful the Audubon, blah, 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 this and the thing. He's up there talking, 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 while Frances tracked down some of her low connections, an admittedly corrupt, let's say connected senator from the Bowery area. He was deeply rooted in the Tammany scandal. I think I should point you to an episode I know the Bowery Boys have had to do. Yes. An episode on Tammany Hall. Let's just say they were pretty unscrupulous and back scratchers and et cetera. 
But she called her connections there and got them back off of their ferry boat to come in. And she changed the structure of the voting populace within the chamber. And Franklin held it off long enough for her to be triumphant when the Tammany people came back and helped her pass the bill. She used those Tammany people uh, sometimes pretty frequently, but the trick was that she knew how to make it appealing to them. They were never going to do anything out of the kindness of their heart because they cared for people. They were going to do things because it would eventually line their pockets or lead them to a place to line their pockets. Right. Yeah. So she has learned, I mean, I think in a very short time, not only about factory work specifically, but about the political scene in New York in the entire state and how to, quite frankly, manipulate and work the politicians in a very short period of time. Her name was everywhere. Frances Perkins knows everything. People would say Frances Perkins can get things done. People hoping to make her mad called her a professional agitator. And she would just smile under her tricorn hat. Like, that's fine. I don't care. That's that's fine. And fluff her hair and say, oh, thank you. (laughs) She is literally a professional agitator. What happened was the cousin of that senator, a man by the name of Theodore Roosevelt, He had recommended her for a position that she accepted to work as the executive director of the New York Committee on Safety because she had so much knowledge of factory operations and conditions. She was called as an expert witness all over the place, not just in New York, but to testify about factory cases and factory situations and conditions in these environments and what was happening to the employees because of it. She was a professional testifier. That's not the word. (laughs) She was a professional witness. The thing that strikes me about all of this work that she's doing within the government of New York is that at this point, she can't even vote. Yep. Crazy. Isn't it? What an example. What do you mean women can't vote? Look at how smart they are. Look at how capable they are. But oh, no. Isn't that something? And, and, you know, and we're going to talk about Frances Perkins A lot and her achievements, but I just want to say that behind the scenes, or sometimes not even behind the scenes, but just for the purposes of this podcast, we cannot possibly talk about them. But think about the enormous structure of women working for all these reforms that it's almost like they're stunting at a cheerleading conference and there's people at the bottom and they keep lifting these people up higher and higher. And it's the little girl at the top that has her arms up in the air like, yay. And she's the one everyone looks at. But like without the giant pyramid of people Mm -hmm. that had not only supported her doing that work, but like got her up there in the first place, this wouldn't have been possible. So Frances did acknowledge other women that helped her and worked with her passionately for the same projects. And I just wanted to take a second to do the same thing Mm -hmm. in case that, you know, we're going to leave out so many. So many people. Yeah, she did. She did a lot. And she was the chief organizer of a lot of things, but she didn't do it by herself. And like you said, she did give credit to these women in her lifetime. That would be like a whole series, like all the women that she worked with and brought up and who helped her step up. Another thing that she was doing at the time that was really smart, really manipulative, but that's her job. She has to make people change their minds. She realized that the men that she was giving tours to, all the senators, they really weren't going to be taking the opinions of a young 30-something pretty woman. 
So she started to dress in really somber colors. She wore her pearls. She wore those tricorn hats and basically dressed like their mothers so that they would listen to her because they all listened to their mothers. And that's how she was trying to project herself. Okay. On our other show, which for those of you who haven't heard it, is called The Recabery. We did a season of The Crown. And when in The Crown, Queen Elizabeth was a very, very young woman, Winston Churchill had advised her to march into Parliament and give them the what for. And she's like, I'm just a young woman. They, they're not going to listen to me. And he said, these are all upper class British men who obey nanny. So go in there and be nanny. And she used the advice and she went in and was stern and authoritative and reminded these men of their nanny. And they not immediately, but a lot of them were like, yes, (laughs) ma'am. And I think it's the same philosophy. And I'm sorry to say it was pretty necessary. Mm -hmm. Well, and the press even started calling her Mother Perkins or Ma Perkins, which she hated internally, but it was effective. Well, and the people like at the settlement houses and things like the the populace that she worked with called her Ma Perkins of the poor man's department. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a grudging homage of respect, though. Right. Yeah. Uh, Like it was kind of a double edged sword. So on one hand, it's very insulting that you had to go through this nonsense. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, doing it prevented a whole other kind of nonsense that inhibited her progress. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I, you know, no, you're right. <laughs> We're not necessarily for manipulation in this day and age, of course, but like, you know, you gotta do it what seemed you gotta necessary. Do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know what? Just I, I, call it manipulation sounds so bad. But what one of us doesn't do that on a daily basis in some way? You know what motivates your kids. So you play to that strength. You know, mm-hmm. even you, I know not to give you three questions at once because when you're working your day job, you can't handle three questions. So, you know, it's not manipulation. It's just really knowing the situation and knowing the people and knowing the best way to work with them. Okay. We'll go with that. It is at this point, and I must admit that the information I have on him is sketchy. Perhaps Susan will have more. That she met an economist by the name of Paul Caldwell Wilson. Now, the information I have on him came from a contemporary that said he was, and I quote, exceptionally good looking and excellent socially. So (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Hooray for him. He was good in a room. Also, his co-workers viewed him as intelligent, honest, and capable. He did run in her same social circles. He was a reformer in his own environment, which was government inefficiency. So he was as irritated by government inefficiency as Francis Perkins was by injustice in employment, you know, Mm -hmm. in factories. So it was a parallel career, but not really a competing one. Right. Paul Caldwell Wilson, doesn't that just sound like a name that grew up in money? That's because it did. He was about four years older than she was. Um, the second of either four or five sons, sources differ, of Marshall and Mary Jane Wilson of Chicago. Not just the Chicago of the city, not like Jane Adams, Chicago, the wealthiest part of Chicago. His father was called a merchant. Uh, he was a business partner to one Marshall Field. So that's the level of merchanting we're, we're talking about here. Just a little, just a little bodega. His past is full of all these names that are now like major businesses. For instance, he had been well-educated first at a private high school, uh, one in Chicago called 
the Armour Institute. It was the brainchild of meatpacker Philip Armour, also a family friend. Curiously, he had taken a class in fire prevention engineering while in high school. Well, then they had something to they talk had, about. They did have something date. to talk about. It's in the school is still open. It's part of the Illinois Institute of Technology now. Go firebugs. Yeah, go. I don't know. I, I didn't. I know. I usually look that up. I didn't look that one up. Paul started off college at Dartmouth but ended up graduating a little bit late with a poli-sci degree from the University of Chicago. So he left New England and came back to Chicago while he was in college. He did some work in Chicago for International Harvester, another family friend, and then headed to New York and to the nonprofit sector. Uh, he worked in an organization whose purpose was to expose government spending or misspending. And one final thing, when his very wealthy father died, he left Paul a very cushy inheritance. So Paul could afford to go work for nonprofits. Right. No one is really sure how Francis and Paul met, but it wasn't in Chicago. He had just left to go work in that nonprofit when she arrived. Paul did have to woo Francis, and it took several years. She just liked dating, I think. She had several bows in her past, none very serious. She was a very social person. Um, they had a very strong friendship that developed into a romance. And he even visited her family in Maine toward the end of that courtship and kissed her at the train station. Huge scandal! Well, when she was 30, Paul proposed marriage. And Francis had to consider her life. She actually took off to England to reflect, I think. Um, she spent her trip to England both sightseeing and fact-finding, just like Susan and I and the rest of the travelers did in London. So Frances Perkins is the history chicks. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, she came home and Paul C. Wilson and Frances Perkins were married that fall on September 26th, 1913. She later said, quote, I wasn't very anxious to get married, to tell the truth. I was quite reluctant, but I thought I'd better marry and get it off my mind because I was always being challenged by someone who thought that he should marry me or wanted to recommend the institution. I know Paul Wilson well. I like him, is what she said. Well, that description is not exactly love's young dream with violins and thunderbolts. They had honeymoon plans of a grand European tour, but just as they were about to set off, uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand got assassinated and a war started, so they had to scrap their plans. A big scandal for society in general was that she kept her maiden name, and the papers seemed to say that she retained her maiden name so as not to embarrass her husband with her political activities. Actually, it was probably that the name Frances Perkins carried a big hammer. Mm -hmm. And who even was Mrs. P. Wilson? Nobody. Right. Like, you're not going to give up the, the brand. Frances Perkins kept up her travels, her investigations, her lobbying. Even after having been married, she began to work on the other side of society's problem. The 54-hour bill reduced oppression, and now she had to work on the other side of the scales. Security, education, unemployment, you know, safety nets, and the vote for women. She said, feminism is revolution and I am a revolutionist. I believe in revolution as a principle. It benefits everybody. 
She balanced work and home in a sort of modern way, um, but I want to make clear that the way was smoothed considerably by income, so nobody should feel guilty. In fact, she even said, and I quote, I have a comfortable home, and there always seem to be plenty of competent and professional household workers who want to take care of the house for me and my husband. So what I take from that is she paid well, A, and B, stayed out of it. So that's a good boss. Right. (laughs) And I bet she was able to keep servants because... um, She was always, you know, fighting for employee rights. So it would be really hypocritical of her to be a bad boss. I think she was really good. But I just want to be clear that in the background, the machine of domesticity was being handled by outside labor. And that's perfectly fine. But I just, you know what I mean? Oh, I don't yeah. know what to say about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that Because there's so much accomplishment, but like she had basically a wife. You know, we always say that wives need a wife. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's not new. We've talked about it before. The fact that Susan B. Anthony had to get on a train and handle the cooking duties at Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house so that Elizabeth Cady Stanton can write fiery speeches of famous feminist rhetoric. Um And this whole thing might be sort of a classist problem, but nevertheless, it was something that was considered important to head off criticism about the fact that while handling all the state's business, everything was still going along well at home, if that makes sense. It was more of the cutting off of criticism before it began. She and her husband gave these intellectually stimulating parties, almost like European salons of the past where the poor professional workers had to deal the next morning with the aftermath of everyone arguing and gesturing wildly with their full wine glasses in their hands, (laughs) which is hilarious to me. Like, oh, I see. It's been an argument and they would clean it up. They were also patrons of art and of writers. She was a supporter of Isadora Duncan's dance school around this time. There's another former subject. Which is kind of hilarious because in some ways, Frances Perkins was very traditional, which cracks me up because she is breaking ground all over the place and trampling on men's prerogatives and not even thinking it's bad. Hooray for her. But she also was very dismissive and angry when she found out there had been infidelity among her friends. And when Paul himself had an affair... Uh, She, again, was trying to be very traditional. She tried to put his career first and stay at home a little bit more. But she felt that her self-esteem was really beginning to crumble without any of these social service projects that she had been doing. She wanted to separate until she realized she was pregnant. And that brought them back together. Although she did miscarry that pregnancy she became pregnant again. And in that, she developed toxemia, which is preeclampsia. It's what Lady Sybil died of on Downton Abbey. Um, It's blood pressure condition in pregnancy. Uh, She knew she needed a C-section. She tried to get Paul on board for what life would look like without her, because even though C-sections had been around since, shockingly, the 1500s was the first recorded one, Did everyone survive, though? No, no, no. Even when Frances was pregnant, um, the death rate was about 17% for (gasps) C-sections. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's worse odds than Russian roulette. (laughs) What's the odds of Russian roulette? This is a math One in six. Yep. Okay. Yep. Wow. Yeah. All right. Yep. 
I mean, we're still 10 years out from antibiotics. So you develop an infection, you go like Lady Sybil did. But Francis survived the procedure. Their son, however, did not and was stillborn. And finally, on December 30th, 1916, at the age of 36, Francis gave birth to Susanna Perkins Wilson, a very healthy baby girl. And she gave her both last names. And when asked about it, she said she may choose which last name she prefers when she registers to vote. Almost the very first thing to happen after Susanna was born was an erroneous birth announcement from the Alumni Association of Mount Holyoke. Spectacular in its almost complete lack of factual information. Birth to Frances Wilson, a daughter, Penelope, born in January 1917. To which our Frances Perkins sent an extraordinarily tart rejoinder, very, very angry about people who persisted in calling her by a married name she never had taken, even after having been corrected multiple times. So the Mount Holyoke Association quickly printed in their next issue a abject retraction. She has never assumed the name of her husband, Mr. Wilson, and therefore the form in which the notice of Frances Perkins' daughter's birth appeared in our April issue was a deplorable mistake. Never mind the fact that they got the year wrong, the month wrong, the child's name wrong. At least they corrected Francis's name, if not her child's. You know, I love the name Penelope, but it's it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I like it too. I guess you could call her Penny or... I don't think they would have though. I mean, if she no. made her name Francis Perkins and she was a fanny. Oh, that's true. That's true. Although I do like that name um, in one of Wreck-It Ralph. Her name's Vanellope because <laughs> all the things were candy names. Anyway. Because of everything they went through having a baby, it did mend their marriage. And Frances kind of backed off at this point just a little bit from her career to focus on motherhood. But it didn't take her long to combine the two things that were important into her life. And she led a group who had a mission of opening free maternity health care and child care clinics across the city. So she can't not work. She knows the care that she had, and she knows that these women don't have it. So she feels it's necessary, and it was, to create situations where they could get that care. The year after little Susanna was born, America joined World War I. And a lot of priorities changed, both in government and in progressive movements all over the country. In fact, even the suffrage movement lost some momentum, which we talked about in the Elizabeth Cady Stanton podcast. She became the executive director of the New York Council of Organization for War Services. Her job was to match capabilities of organizations with needs of other organizations and also oversaw these agencies and their efficient and economical operation. It was a big, giant deal. Big, giant deal. And she also wrote a pamphlet, which I cannot get my mitts on, <laughs> that I want desperately to find. So if anyone has a copy of it, called Women as Employees. Now, of course, 
women have been working for a long time, you know, in factories, in domestic service, etc. But this is kind of the first time that your intake was middle class people who didn't necessarily have to work, who were working for patriotic reasons, some of them um, who were taking the place of the men who had been sent overseas. And I would be very interested to know what her recommendations were. It was written for employers to help them with their women employees. I've read a similar pamphlet that was given out for World War II, but not written by Frances Perkins. Right. That's kind of like what Lillian Gilbreth would be doing later in the decade, you know, helping employers assimilate women into the workforce by, you know, creating an environment where they could be comfortable and their needs were met. Yeah, it was a big cultural shift. So yes, they're working in factories, but now they're building airplanes. They're dealing with TNT and other munitions. They are driving ambulances. They're driving buses. They're railroad conductors and bank tellers and postal workers. Mm. And these ladies were formerly middle-class homemakers, most of them. The employment rate for women at the beginning of the war, so at 1914, when it all kicked off in Europe, was only 23.6%. But by the time that we are in the timeline here in 1918, it had risen to almost 48% of women were employed outside of the home if they were between 18 and 65. Wow. That's amazing. That's a shocking amount of growth. And I think it was a big cultural shift. Mm -hmm. Now, during the war, get this, New York State gave women the vote. Yay. (laughs) About six months after the U.S. entered World War I, it was the first Eastern state to do so. You'll see on this map. I mean, the wild, wild west was the most progressive in this deal. I had that theory. We talked about this on another show. Can't tell you which. When you had to rely on women to help you run the homestead, you really valued her contributions more, you know? Mm. Yeah, I don't remember. Like when you had to literally rely on her for half the work. Right. I wonder if that's why the West was so progressive in that regard. Oh, maybe. Maybe. Hmm. But anyway, New York State did the East Coast proud. It was the only one for a number of years. The very first election that women could vote in was the midterm election of 1918, fraught, unfortunately, with the complications of the Spanish flu pandemic and all of its restrictions on movement and gathering. So who's to say the campaigns did not go, you know, people weren't out there agitating as they could have been, perhaps. It wasn't just society that was sick. Behind the scenes, someone else was not doing very well. Paul began to slide into what Francis called an up-and-down illness. We know it now as bipolar disorder. Or at least that is the diagnosis that experts looking back from today, um, evaluating his symptoms as best they can, never having seen him as a patient, are guessing was his condition. Although, of course, the condition existed and was recognized in some form as far back as ancient Greece, Bipolar as a disorder, believe it or not, didn't even come into the manual until 1980. So there's no way they would have diagnosed him with this condition. Nevertheless, something was very, very wrong. He would go on these wild spending sprees and then have episodes of real anger followed by depressions and then just repeat that whole cycle. And what had been a really full coffer that he had brought into the marriage from his inheritance, whittled away to nearly nothing. And it wasn't his first bout with this illness. That break that he had taken in college, 
It first reared itself when he was at Dartmouth. And that's why he went home to Chicago to, you know, rest and relax and get back on track. So unfortunately, Frances wasn't in a situation now where she could work. She was in a situation where she had to work because Paul wasn't able to keep a job. Well, and the treatment of many mental disorders at the time was simply a treatment facility. You know, let's send you to an institution to let doctors look at you. And so he was away from home for a lot of the time. And some of their friends even speculated that he was an alcoholic. Frances was very tight-lipped about it. Their salons just became a thing of the past. She sort of withdrew socially Mm -hmm. at, at certain points because, you know, she had to recalibrate. She had to figure out what to do. So she definitely had to stage a career comeback. And so she did. The man that she was able to vote for for governor, Al Smith, the man that she had been working with after the fire at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, uh, was elected governor. And he one day brought Francis up to Albany, which is the state capital of New York, and offered her a position on the Industrial Commission of the state of New York. She was the first woman to be appointed, and it was a controversial choice. It had to be approved by the state Senate, and it was only approved by a vote of 34 to 16. So not everybody was keen on this, even though she had so much experience in this specific thing, industrial investigations. It's funny because the Association of Manufacturers and Merchants, thumbs down. The Labor Federation, thumbs down. All of these people had representatives on the commission and they just tap danced and, oh, now believe she doesn't this and that, the thing. We don't believe she has this experience. And nobody said lady person. Nobody said it. But everybody knew it. And everybody knew that's what they were saying, that they didn't want a woman on the commission. Right. Tough toot, you know, Mm -hmm. because everyone in power was going to put her on that commission. And not only that. They gave her a very large paycheck. She was earning $8,000 a year, which now, oh my gosh, that's nothing. But at the time, it was about $130,000. Is that the figure that you had? I have at $8,000 a year. (laughs) Susan will have it. She earned four times the average household income. She was the highest paid woman in New York state government. Not that the pool was very deep. But she can support well, her but family. here's the thing. Al Smith was no sleeper on this kind of thing. And this governor knew that a whole state full of new voters mm-hmm. needed a representative, you know, to, to kind of prove. I know it was a little self-serving, too. He knew she could do the job, but also wasn't she going to be good for him if he ever decided to run for higher office? Surely she would bring the women's vote with her. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Well, so it's not like. Al Smith, the man with the halo. Right, right, right. (laughs) Right. Well, he's a politician. You know, she never gets to that level. But yeah, that's what they do. There was a funny little hiccup when Governor Smith learned that Francis was not a registered Democrat. (laughs) And he told her she needed to go and fix that. So what did they do in that commission? They worked to enforce and expand the work that they had done in her previous factory investigating commission. I mean, they had fought so hard to draft laws, raise support for them, and get them enacted. Also, her new position had an element of 
judicial oversight, which is interesting. So that commission heard appeals cases with regard to workman's compensation, an additional facet to her work. She's always adding. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. So every job has been an education. Mm -hmm. And every job, she's able to take what she's learned at previous ones, which is what you're supposed to do in a career, you know, and apply it to that job and then expand on it. She basically reorganized the entire department to make sure that it was more efficient and there wasn't, you know, steps that didn't need to be taken. And she was really boots on the ground a lot of times and going into conflicts between labor and management and just hearing the stories from both of them and you know, trying to come to some mediation in the middle. She kept all of her network. So she made special pains to go to the Tuesday dinner at the Henry Street Settlement House and also belonged to one of the most exclusive business women's clubs in in New York City. And an admirer wrote this about her and her work during this period. She is always alert, never off her guard, never inattentive, never out of humor. The people never become mere cases to her. And she has an uncanny power of finding the human chink in the professional armor, even of an insurance company lawyer. I never sat under a judge who was better at getting at the facts, nor swiffer in apprehension of their relevance. She has won every inch of her way to the high office she now holds by service, efficiency, and a remarkable combination of courage and humor. I love that description of her because, you know, we see pictures of her. She looks so stern and serious, but she wasn't. She was very relatable to a wide range of people and very um, personable and had a sense of humor and quick wit, which she used to her advantage. Unfortunately, when Smith ran for re-election, he lost his bid and she was out of a job. She really wasn't too excited about her next position at an immigrant aid society. She was helping people, but it wasn't the kind of work that she liked to do. Fortunately, she didn't have to do it for very long because Smith ran for re-election again and won. So she's 42 and she's back working on the job that she loves on the Industrial Commission. This time she's getting really involved in um, strikes, you know, the disputes between the unions and the employers, the companies, telling them, yeah, I know you really want to go bomb these people, but you need to take the dynamite that's in the basement of this very house and go dump it in the canal. And all these guys like lower their heads, go down to the basement and haul out dynamite, a baby carriage and bags. They're just hauling out all this dynamite that they were planning to use as a retaliation for some violence that was done by the owners of the company. So, I mean, she's right there. Dangerous situations. I know. And isn't it interesting that it almost seems like she brings so much logic. Everybody's all popping off and, and emotional. And she's the one that comes in and evaluates the situation and says, OK, I hear you. Mm-hmm. But look at yourself. <laughs> right. Look, look at what is legitimately look at what is happening right now. And it's so funny to me that it's often said that women are too emotional in business. You know, like that's always the, the criticism or right. whatever. And I'm thinking and here we have you know, basically the sharks and the jets getting ready to beat each other to smithereens. And she doesn't have to raise her voice, really. Come on. And she's looking at the whole situation, though, because she's also telling the governor to call off the police that he has sent to the area to help with crowd control, because it's just going to agitate both sides even more. You know, the police are eventually going to have to pick a side. You know, something's going to happen. 
on either side. And she's like, just get him out of here. I can talk this through. These people will be reasonable. And they were. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of power. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of power. So later, Al Smith, the governor, during his last term, his last year of his last term, he elevated her, in fact, to the top position as chairman of the board for the whole organization. So a reward for good service, although Al Smith was for the chop and a new man in town that you and I will both recognize. The new governor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was just elected the governor of New York to replace Al Smith. And immediately his wife, Eleanor, who had been in the same progressive orbit as Francis for years, and a number of Eleanor's intellectual contemporaries wasted no time in putting Francis's qualifications in front of him. They literally got on a train and went to where he he liked to go to this hot springs because he had been stricken by polio and was always looking for ways to fix his situation. So they found him at physical therapy functionally mm-hmm. in person and put Francis's name. And he said, I know, said FDR, all about her. (laughs) And I read the funniest thing, that one of the women that went down there wrote to her friend, because you know he always has to be right. Or the idea always has to come from him. I'm so reminded of my big fat Greek wedding. (laughs) Yes. You know, the men are the head of the house, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she (laughs) She wants. Right. And that's exactly what happened. So they buttonholed him and he's like, I was already going to. (laughs) Jeez, you know. And FDR asked Francis to become his industrial commissioner, head of the whole department and official government cabinet position. So basically a labor secretary, but at the state level. She would have 1,800 employees under her, but she hesitated. She had known him for years, but she wanted to make sure in a working relationship, if they were on the same page. She knew he was progressive, but she wanted to make sure that he was as progressive as she was. Well, she told him straight out that she'd rather not, frankly. But then that phrase that her grandma always said came into her mind. If someone opens a door for you, you should walk through it. Mm. So while saying to him that she did not want to join his department, she also laid out a well thought out criticism of the entire way he was going about things in like a 58 point plan for reforming his department, to which he said, awesome, let's call the press. (laughs) And one of the headlines that actually ran said, Miss Frances Perkins is the first of her sex for office in Empire State. Women were absolutely gobsmacked. You know, a representative of an enlightened citizenship in such a position of power. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me a little of when Obama was elected. It's almost like I never thought this would happen kind right. of thing. Right, right. Well, she's always been really honest and she continues to be so in this high public position at a celebration after her swearing in. It was a swanky affair for a thousand people at the Hotel Astor in New York City. Uh, she, mm. yeah, she stood up and gave a speech, and it's just, this is just a little paraphrase that cut out a lot of it. But she said, "I promise to use the brains I have to meet problems with intelligence and courage. I promise that I will be candid about what I know, and I promise to all of you who have the right to know the whole truth and nothing but the truth, as far as I can speak it. If I have been wrong, you may tell me so, 
for I really have no pride in judgment. I may be right today and wrong tomorrow. The only thing that can make it truly right is the desire to have it constantly moving in the right direction. She just spelled it out. So honest, like not even a political kind of speech. And she ended it by saying, I do ask you to lift up your hearts that I be made both wise and watchful so that only good shall come. And then turned around on her personal desk and wrote to the woman that had arranged this. I mean, I didn't have a thousand people at my wedding. (laughs) And here's a thousand people that have come out in celebration of her being elected to this position. So she made a point of writing to the woman, the activist, the progressive feminist activist who had arranged for this luncheon and said, I am grateful for all you did to make this a success. It has given me a new insight into the beauty of loyalty and chivalry between women. How fine it is to play the game together all these years, isn't it? She started work and she had 1,800 employees over a wide ranging cavalcade of departments from workers' comp to women in industry to industrial relations. That's where the strikes and the labor board comes in, inspections and industrial hygiene and materials. It's a lot. It's a lot of spinning plates. Yes. With her new job, her salary also increased because her responsibilities increased. She's now making about $12,000 a year, which in modern money is about $200,000. But she's also commuting back and forth between New York City and Albany. Um, She was able to open an office in New York to work at sometimes so she could spend time with her daughter, Susanna, who at this point is about 12. Frances is trying to be a part of her life as much as she possibly can, but she has this really busy job. And Paul is going back and forth as far as his health is concerned, and he is being hospitalized and institutionalized and then released and this whole time. So, you know, it's one thing to focus on what she's doing, but to realize what's going on in her personal life that she's very invested in. You know, she just didn't walk away from it. I, it boggles my mind how I, I feel like such a slacker. <laughs> She doesn't talk about her personal life. You know, there's not a whole lot of records of things that happened in her personal life. Although about this time, she's starting to change the year that she was born. You'll see a lot of reports that she was born in 1882 when she was really born in 1880. She saved two years off of it, which made her the same age as her boss. I have to tell you, though, like somebody asked me how old I was the other day, and I accidentally, I didn't shave two years off, but I got really confused. Oh, that happens Because I keep counting everything from 2020. And <laughs> like, I'm almost like, because I said immediately the age I was in 2020, because I, I don't know, I literally had to stop and think, I have no idea. And I'm constantly surprised when I'm like, wait, how old? Maybe. And it wasn't hers because she filled out her passport paperwork and stuff with that fraudulent. You know, maybe there was a traumatic two years that she needed to erase. I don't really know. But in addition to not talking about her personal life, Frances Perkins has never been one to toot her own horn professionally, Um, not in the way that you would expect someone to. Even in that speech, when she accepted this job, she humbly asked for people's help. She promised to do a good job. She reminds me of that first speech that Queen Elizabeth gave 
when she was a young princess, like I pledge the rest of my life to your service or whatever. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that extreme, but she basically said, I, I pledge to be honest and do the best job I can or whatever. But she was never the one like, hey, look at this legislation that I did. Mm-hmm. Raise a glass to me, 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 me. People would ask, you know, how do you get all these jobs? And she's like, they come to me because of my hard work. I don't, I don't seek recognition. I don't seek advancement. It just comes to me. I don't know. Maybe that's humble brag, but it seems that she is more modest than she really has the right to be. You know, like oh, she, I know she should probably toot her horn. Yeah, yeah. But that's why we literally don't know about her accomplishments, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Back to her professional life. So Frances began her work, and by the way, she was very into uh, motion study at this point. Susan mentioned earlier our episode on Lillian Gilbreth. Incidentally, the mom from Cheaper by the Dozen is how you might know her, who was a pioneer in the science of motion study. So again, second recommendation of going back and listening to that episode. But Frances Perkins thought that it increased worker safety to have routines and like almost a habitual reliance on muscle movement that would prevent accidents. That was what she took from motion study rather than efficiency of production. If only she had been able to focus more on that, who's to say what could have come out of it? But she started to notice a disturbing trend in the late 1920s, a general decline in the economy. She said, A depression is the slow disappearance of the market for commodities, which stocks and bonds represent, like steel, coal, clothing, beef, automobiles, telephone calls, cold cream, houses, even books. She started to notice that all these categories were declining in consumption. She is the master statistician. She saw the signs long before the famous crash, stock market crash of 19. 29. The economy was very bad for the average person. And she said, ahead of this crash, we have awakened with a shock to the frightful injustice of economic conditions, which will allow men and women who are willing to work, allow them to suffer the distress of hunger, cold, and humiliating dependence. We are determined to find out the causes of this involuntary unemployment in this country. She saw it. So she was absolutely infuriated when the White House released an optimistic press release. Hooray, prosperity is round the corner with some numbers, question mark. And she went to the press after some investigation. Where did you get those numbers, White House? Not from my office, which is, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, the source of all numbers that come to the government (laughs) functionally from this state. It didn't come through my office. so. Where are these numbers from? She went toe to toe in public with President Hoover in the press. And somebody thought to catch her out and, and you know, how do you know this? And she would say things like, our index of manufacturing employment is now based on the average for 36 months from January 1925 to December 1927. Blah, 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 blah. 94.2, 100 jobs, 214 in November 29th. And they're like on and on and on and on with statistics. And they're like... Um, oh, okay. (laughs) No one disbelieved her. She had a photographic memory for statistics and was perfectly fine rattling them off while making eye contact with you, is what I'm saying. They were in her head and not on a piece of paper. And you know how the press and public viewed Herbert Hoover at this time? If you have seen the musical Annie, you already know. 
that there, I mean, there's a whole song about him in Annie. Have, do you remember the musical Annie, which everyone was obsessed with? Yes, I do, but I also know that you probably know it. So I'm going to feign ignorance. No, what, what song? (laughs) (laughs) That song, we like to thank you, Herbert Hoover. You know, that song. In every pot, he said a chicken, but Herbert Hoover, he forgot. Now, I don't only got the chicken, I ain't got the pot. <laughs> Remember that song? Yes, I do. So everyone was already peeved at here he is, like with his joviality, when the, the boots on the ground knew that we're all standing in soup line. So why don't you tell me what, you know, 18, 19, 20% unemployment looks like from the ivory tower? Because from down here, it looks like I'm losing a lot of weight and I've run out of holes on my belt. You know, so her side was the right side in that argument. She said it was irresponsible of the White House to release misleading statements when the average person is reaching the end of their resources. She's like, this is not people's fault. And you're acting like it is like if they're not making it, it's on them. So she called FDR after she cooled down a little bit. I mean, her boss is FDR, you know, (laughs) the governor of New York. And she's like, oh, okay, this could be bad. Her boss said. Well, thanks for not asking permission because I might have had to tell you no, but I love it. (laughs) And I love a boss like that. And that seems like a very good place to stop. I know. I know. Three parts. I know. So far, only Maya Angelou has rated a three-parter and we're going to do it again. So tune in next time. Um, We won't give you as long of a holiday break this time. (laughs) We'll come back at our, our regular two-week period to give you the wrap-up on the life of Frances Perkins. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. I knew that I could count on them. And I went back and looked, and sure enough, the Bowery Boys did do an episode on um, Tammany Hall. And it's called Graft and Greed, Boss Tweed, and the Glory Days of Tammany Hall. It's from 2016. We will put the rest of the media at the end of part three. Nevertheless, um, we'll give you this one in the show notes for this episode at thehistorychicks.com. We'll provide you a link. See you next time. Took a monkey for a ride in the air. The buzzer thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off of his back. The monkey grabbed his neck and said, Now listen, Jack. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. What's the use in jiving? Ain't no use in diving Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top The buzzer told the monkey, you're choking me Release your hold and I shall set you free The monkey looked the buzzer right dead in the eye And said, your story's so touching, son, but it sounds like a lie Straighten up and fly right Straighten up and stay right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top
fly right Straighten up and stay right Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top What's the use in jiving? Ain't no use in diving Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top The buzzer told the monkey you're choking me Release your hold and I shall set you free The monkey looked the buzzard right dead in the eye and said, your story's so touching, son, but I know it's a damn lie. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Fly right.